Service Sandwiches at Irregular Hours, episode 146 for January 12th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenflow. And I'm Pam Bador. And we are here. Look at us. We are looking at one of, uh, wow, what a great science fiction world that we live in. And a world that, boy, might be very different 21 years from now. We are reading Flash Forward by Robert J. Sawyer. This was published in 1999. Uh, We're going to party like it's 1999 today because we have the author himself, (laughs) Robert J. Sawyer with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, to say that we're delighted to have you is an understatement. I think a certain member of our show is a, a little excited to talk to Robert J. Sawyer. <laughs> right, that Pam? would be me, Rob. <laughs> I'm it's thrilled, super. Pam. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to have you. I've taught your books many times. I've introduced you to many American students over the years as uh, I, fellow Canadian, uh, work here at the University of Connecticut. And so really, really exciting to speak with you. My pleasure. And I'm a first time reader. And so I have absolutely, um, I'm eating this up. And I thank Pam for um, recommending this book. And I thank you for writing it. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. That's wonderful. (laughs) And there's lots more cool books to come. So, so Rob, if I can start by doing the Canadian thing, because I study Canadian literature as well as, uh, you know, reading and, and teaching it. So as one Canadian to another, I can tell you one thing I love about opening up your newest books, and I've read all 24 of them, is knowing that it will include Canadian content, whether you're setting distant future or wherever. It seems like you always have some Canadian content. And I'm curious, is that a commitment that you've made to yourself and to your readers? Or is it just something that happens? Like you like to represent Canada? It's both. And I know one of your interests, Pam, is uh, mystery fiction as well as Mm -hmm. science fiction. And when I, I, a lot of my work crosses over, Flash (laughs) 4 being an example, science fiction, (laughs) mystery fiction. And I used to be very active in the uh, Crime Writers of Canada, which is our equivalent of the Mystery Writers of America. And so many of my colleagues when I was starting out in the 1990s were writing mystery novels set either in the United States or Great Britain, but not in Canada. And uh, they said, well, they've been told by someone somewhere sometime that if you set a work in Canada, it will never sell on the world stage. And I, as one of my characters, Caitlin Dechter says in my novel, Wake, all the time, it's her mantra, I'm an empiricist at heart. Where is the (laughs) evidence that this is true? I wanted these writers to show me somebody on Young Street, the main north-south thoroughfare in Toronto, begging with a cup for coins and say, you know that guy? That's an author who set his book in Canada. (laughs) And nobody could do that. They could not point out uh, the guys who had tried in the in commercial fiction genres, mystery, thriller, romance, uh, even Western, uh, where it was a failure to set it in Canada. My first novel, Golden Fleece, um, came out in 1990, which was just the beginning of when writers were producing manuscripts through word processors as opposed to typewriters. And I thought, you know, my main character, I'm going to make him from Thunder Bay, Ontario. And I'm going to have Canadian references in the book. Because if the publisher in New York, which was Warner, objects, it's not retype the manuscript all 360 (laughs) pages. It's 15 minutes to change, uh, you know, Thunder Bay to somewhere in Illinois or something. And I would grind my teeth and, and complain, but I would have done it. Never once. Never once in 30 years now, Golden Fleece came out 30 years ago last month, has any American publisher, editor, agent, bookseller, reviewer, or reader ever complained about the Canadian content in my books. It's just natural. He's in Canada. He writes about Canada. The same way that a British writer, they would never say, well, why is this British writer writing about the countryside of the Midlands instead of about Nebraska. I know Nebraska. Why are they writing about Britain? I don't want to. Everybody understands that a national writer 
writes about his or her or their environment. And yet Canadians had been programmed. And I actually think this programming, I don't want to sound conspiracy theory minded, but it is only in the last decade that you will routinely find in the New York Times front section mentions of Canada. The only mentions routinely in the New York Times hitherto were in the sports section. If the Blue Jays or the Montreal Canadiens have <laughs> done well in competition or been defeated in competition against American teams, that would be mentioned. And I almost think there was a deliberate desire on the part of the United States to ignore the object lesson of Canada, the socialist object lesson, the multicultural object lesson, the pacifist object lesson. You know, it's easy for the United States to say, oh, those Scandinavian countries where people have health care and people have government-sponsored education and people have, you know, collectively uh, contribute to the common good at the expense, maybe, of their personal enrichment. But they're far away. They're another continent. There's an ocean in between. But Canada, which is much more like a Scandinavian country than the United States, in its social structure, in its social contract, in the way its people approach life, uh, was too close at hand. And so it had to be eliminated from the discourse. And finally, in this last decade, uh, I think the United States has woken up, partly because of people like Bernie Sanders, who have spoken uh, very eloquently about not just Scandinavia, not just the, Brit the, the uh, northern uh, countries of Europe, but also about Canada as an example right next door of people who look like us, who speak the same language, who are integrated into the same global economy, nonetheless operating in a fundamentally different way than the American model. So it was important to me 30 years ago to stand up and say, hey, Canadian values, this is a model for the 21st century. But it's even more important now for, I think, the world to acknowledge that Canada, New Zealand, Australia, countries that share a great deal, including linguistics with the United States, work in a way fundamentally different than the American model. Mm -hmm. And. And Rob, I actually moved to the U.S. in 1999 for grad school, and I always expected to come back to Canada. And then apropos of this, I'm friends with David Morrell. Who's David Morrell? He created the quintessential American antihero Rambo, right? He wrote the novel <laughs> First Blood. And David is a Canadian. And what? David, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> David teaches at an American university. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. why? There's a flip side here. There is a Canadian, there was a Canadian disregard for genre fiction. And David said, I would have loved to have taught at U of T. You think I didn't apply mm -hmm. to Toronto? You think I didn't apply yeah. to teach at Same. Or, <laughs> Same. or apply at every university yep. in Canada? They mm -hmm. wouldn't have me, but I had the pick of American academic appointments when I showed up and said, I wrote Rambo, right? right. And right. so we had, you know, I don't want to blame the United States completely <laughs> for this. Right. Canada. Right was saying very much that, you know, oh, you're not a confederation poet. You're not writing about coming of age on the prairie. Uh, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, that's going too far, Rob. But yes, right. Canada doesn't study popular culture in the same in the same ways. I, I had the exact same experience of having, you know, 78 jobs to apply to in the U.S. the year I came out with my Ph.D. and two jobs in Canada, my field of popular culture. Now, it's changed. It has changed. We have finally embraced uh, the fact that, you know, Canadians are world class in science fiction, Absolutely. world class in thriller, world class in mystery fiction. And of course, the engine of romance fiction for the last half century was Harlequin, which was for a very, very long time part of the Toronto Star newspaper empire owned by the parent company Torstar. Of course, this is typical Canadianism. We sold the hugely successful commercial fiction slash ebook company and kept the print newspaper, right? Instead of, you know, the other way around, we are so good at, at creating, right? The BlackBerry created the cellular cell phone revolution. We're wonderful at creating and then just backing away when it becomes, you know, time to really step up to the plate and be world class. 
And you, you guys have been working with me now for a few years, Chip and Steve, but notice that Canadians always know all the accomplishments of Canada. Look, Rob's doing the same thing I always do. Oh, that's a Canadian right. who did the basketball. <laughs> we always basketball. Naismith and basketball. Right. But absolutely, you know, I mean, Chip never do. talks about North Carolina. He never talks about the things that come out of North <laughs> Carolina. Oh, wait, he never. does all the time. And and by the way, Chicago is world renowned. And tobacco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chicago is world renowned too. You've got you know, uh, the nuclear Sears. reactor. Yeah, the place where everybody's going to get their vaccine. Yeah. The nuclear reactor <laughs> yeah. was created at uh, the University of Chicago's Stag Field. Yes, underneath, uh, well, in a squash court underneath Stag Field. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, you did some good. And the pizza's not bad there either. And the lab that's <laughs> not under the field, the lab that they, that they were working in, the windows on that lab were made by my family company. Thank you very much. They were under the, you're absolutely right. They're under the bleachers at the mm -hmm. field. They're under the bleachers. Mm -hmm. That my novel, the, the Oppenheimer Alternative, the second chapter mm -hmm. in the novel takes place at Stag Field. Yeah, they're in the bleachers. <laughs> um, Having just read your novel, yeah, I knew exactly right. why you knew that off the top of your head. <laughs> so now, and I should say, so I have actually read all of your novels. And one of the things that I also really enjoy about your writing is that you don't stick with a specific subgenre. You know, some sci-fi writers, they always do time travel or they always do AI or whatever. And you've really done, I mean, pretty much now that you've done the uh, alternate history I mean, you, you've covered a ton of different subgenres of science fiction. And so that makes me wonder, like, how much do you read? And how do you split your fiction versus nonfiction reading? Because you obviously are widely familiar with all of these different subgenres. This is a stegosaurus. I love dinosaurs. I love all kinds of fields of science, but I love dinosaurs in particular. And I thought I was going to be a paleontologist. But you can't just be a paleontologist. You have to be either a vertebrate or an invertebrate paleontologist. Can't just be a vertebrate paleontologist. You be a dinosaurian vertebrate paleontologist. You can't just be a dinosaurian vertebrate paleontologist. This is a kind of dinosaur called an ornithischian based on the hip structure. Be an ornithischian dinosaurian vertebrate. You can't. You have to be a stegosaurian, ornithischian, dinosaurian, vertebrate paleontologist whose particular field of study is the thagomizer, the spikes at the end that are used in defense <laughs> or sexual display. That's how hyper-specialized you have to be to be an academic. But I have always had a widely ranging interest in everything. There's a great line from Star Trek, uh, third season episode, Requiem from Methuselah. When uh, McCoy asks uh, the android Reina, what else besides uh, subspace phenomena or something uh, interests you? And she says, everything, the totality of the universe, anything else is betrayal of the intellect. Boom. That's mm. me. I'm a generalist. I want to know mm -hmm. a little bit. Well, I'd like to know everything about everything, but you can't. I want to know a little <laughs> bit about everything. And there are very few jobs for a generalist in science. There are, in fact, two, the science fiction writer and the science journalist who can move from field to field to field, be conversant with. And you don't have to be a scientist to be either of those things, just as you don't have to be an athlete to be a sports journalist. You have to know who the players are, who's likely to win and lose, what the odds are, what's at stake, and you have to write compellingly about those fields. I was very fortunate. I said that science fiction and, and indeed genre literature is now taken much more seriously in Canada than it used to be. Oh my God, what is it now? Seven years ago, five years ago, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario held a three-day academic conference in honor of actually the donation of my archives to their, uh, to their library. And uh, it was titled at my suggestion, Science Fiction the interdisciplinary genre. You sit at U, uh, University of Connecticut and you probably eat lunch with other English professors. And there's a quantum physicist somewhere else in that lunchroom in the faculty club. And there's also a paleontologist and there's a microclimate specialist and there's somebody who's a linguist. And there's all these people who are in their little academic silos because that's the way academia works. 
And I said, science fiction is the place where cheek to jowl, otherwise disparate fields of intellectual endeavor spark off each other. In fact, when people ask me what my definition of science fiction is, I don't say anything to do with science and technology. I say it is the genre or literature of intriguing juxtapositions where things mm, that like normally that. would yeah. not come in contact with each other, artificial intelligence and philosophy of mind, evolutionary mm -hmm. biology and quantum physics, which is my novel hominids, for instance, for Joan the Hugo, right. bang together, spark off each other in a way that no other discipline allows. So yeah, I'm not the guy who goes back, you know, I love William Gibson, my, my great Canadian colleague, uh, yes. <laughs> but it has been said of Bill, he has written his book again. Right. He has written right. his book again. He's gone back to that same very narrow field that Bill writes about possibly better, I don't even need the qualifier, better than anybody else on the planet. But you turn to Bill when you want to explore this. In fact, it's now an alternate world in which cyberpunk manifests itself. It is nothing at all like the world that we actually live in. But he has a very specific field to write about. I never wanted to be categorized as that. I wanted to be a guy who said, can you believe that the guy who wrote the Oppenheimer Alternative also wrote Farseer about a dinosaurian Galileo? Is it, how can that <laughs> right. be the same guy? That's what I want people yeah. to say when uh -huh. they read my books. So that you brought it up. So I'm going to ask the question, how much do you use the current moment to write these stories of the future? And, and how much do you get locked into the current thinking when applying it to the future? I see a few things in flash forward that I go, yeah, that might've been the thinking when you wrote this, but it's not the thinking today. Yeah. So I am a literary descendant of H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells knew, he was, you know, if you asked people, well, my, one of my favorite movies is The Maltese Falcon and the novel. And in both, Casper Gutman, the Sidney Greenstreet character, says to Sam Spade, who is the Humphrey Bogart character, this is, well, this is history, Mr. Spade. Not Mr. Wells's history, but history nonetheless. In the time in which uh, Dashiell Hammett was writing that, H.G. Wells wasn't known as a science fiction writer in particular. He was known as a popular historian. That was how Wells made his bread and butter. And Wells knew there were things he could not say as a popular historian about his here and now. 1895, when Time Machine came out. 1898, when War of the Worlds came out. That a the audience for popular history did not want to hear. In particular, they didn't want to hear in 1895 that the British class system wasn't just bad for the underclass, everybody knew that, but was also bad for the leisure class. So he wrote The Time Machine to say that. He wanted to say to the world, a world that did not want to hear it, a British world that did not want to hear it, that British colonialism was evil, was bad, not just for... Uh, the, the indigenous peoples who were being trampled underfoot, but was bad for the soul of Britain. And so he said it in War of the Worlds. And I've always said that any work of science fiction is not about the putative year it's, which it's set. Certainly Time Machine is not about the year 802-701 AD, but it is about <laughs> the year in which it was written. It is a way of, con of reflecting contemporary reality to an audience that would be unreceptive to it without a disguise of mask, metaphor, a dislocation in time and place. That's how you sneak up and hit them over the head with the message that they otherwise would not choose to engage with. Robert, we're reading Flash Forward from 1999. What was your inspiration for this story? This was the only time a novel fell into my lap completely from like, boom, I've got it. And it was in 1995, so four years before the book came out, my wife and I hosted a 20th anniversary reunion party for our high school science fiction club, which is where we had met. And 
every person who showed up 20 years later said one variation or another of the same thing. If I'd only known then what I know now, my <laughs> life would have been better. I wouldn't have married that jerk. I wouldn't have taken that dead end job. I wouldn't have made that terrible investment. I wouldn't have chosen the wrong career. I wouldn't have had kids or I would have had whatever it was. Every one of them <laughs> was sure that with hindsight of 20 years that they would have done things differently and that that, for, that foreknowledge would have been a boon. And I said, huh, I wonder if that's really true. If you knew what your future held 20 years down the road, would you A, be better off, B, be able to change it? Or is there a force to human psychology? Here it is. We're talking on, I don't know what date this is going to drop for people to listen to, but we're talking on January 9th of 2021. Nine years ago, any number of us made New Year's resolutions with every good intent of keeping them. How many of you have kept them nine days, yet alone 365? There is a perverse inertia to human psychology that says even with the best forward-thinking intentions to change our behavior, we fail to do so. And there is a cumulative inertia of 7 billion of us who will thwart the attempt of any one of us to swim against whatever stream history is moving towards. So the book just fell into my lap right then <laughs> and there. And then I had to contrive, well, you know, what science could I come up with that would make it possible for people to see the future? How much of the future you need to see to know that you've screwed up, right? And I thought... You don't need much to see that you're miserable in the future or that you don't see the future at all. You're dead in the future. And the whole thing was a very straightforward construction at that point. Wow, that's really a fascinating origin story. Very specific. That's super interesting. Yeah, and most of them aren't like that. Most of them right. are like, you know, <laughs> sure. Earth accreted from the, uh, the proto-nebula around the sun, all these planetesimals that clanked together and eventually formed a sufficient mass. And then another protoplanet hit the side of Earth and knocked the moon out. This is our best cosmology of how, you know, the Earth-Moon system was formed. It's accidental collisions. It's a whole bunch of things colliding together and, <laughs> and some stick and some don't. That's how a novel is normally created. It's extraordinarily rare. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people always think, what was, they say, what is your inspiration? And you, they want to hear that God emerged on Sinai and handed you tablets and said, you know, here, are the, here are the 10 uh, commandments for this novel. Just, just, just write it up and tell the people, right? No, it doesn't work that way. I think Mel Brooks that proved that there were 15. 15, these, these 10, yes, commandments. That's right. <laughs> but, but that's really, the origin story of this makes it clear how you know, this is a really interesting scenario, which actually opens up a ton of different stories that you could have told. And in this fairly short novel, you do actually briefly tell many, 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 yes. many little stories. But of course, as someone who studies both detective fiction and sci-fi, I was really, I love Theo's story. Yes. And I'm curious, you often sort of reside in that intersection between science fiction and detective fiction. What do you think are the affordances of that space? Like how detective fiction and science fiction merge. It is an accident of publishing history that science fiction and fantasy are shelved together. And the accident, I'll say, tell you what it is in 60 seconds. In the 1960s, there was this enormous publishing phenomenon in the United Kingdom called Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. There was a loophole in American copyright law that said if there was no a domestic American edition of an English language text, available within X months of publication, it could be declared public domain in the United States and published without payment to the copyright holder. That no longer is the law, but it was the law. And Donald A. Wolheim, who is the DAW in DAW books, one of the seminal imprints of science fiction fantasy now, was in fact the science fiction editor for Ballantine books. And he had fallen in love with Lord of the Rings and knew that uh, British editions were being imported into the United States, but there was no domestic American edition. And so he simply pirated it. And since he was an editor for a science fiction imprint, 
that's where Lord of the Rings came out. And suddenly this marriage between those things, stories of things that plausibly might happen and stories about things that never could happen, stories about science and stories about magic got jammed together. They don't belong together. They are absolutely opposite intellectually. One is an exercise in extrapolation and the other is an exercise in denial, saying, forget the law of conservation of mass and energy. Forget the universe we live in. Forget physical law. Here is some escapism for you. Right? They're completely different. But science fiction and mystery both prize the logical, ratiocinative process of figuring out step by step what the heck is going on. Now, in a mystery, what the heck is going on? Who killed this guy? Why did they kill this guy? What's the motive? Who had a reason to gain from this? How did it happen? How was it done? How is the detective going to figure it out? And can I, as the reader, engaged as a participant in the text, has I, as a reader, beat the writer to the revelation? Oh, yeah, okay, I got it. I Oh, no, it was the butler. Oh, I didn't see that guy, <laughs> right? Same thing in science fiction, although instead yeah. of the mystery being who did it, the mystery is where are we and how did we get there? And here again, to go back to the difference between science fiction and fantasy, there is always a way to get from our here and now to the milieu of a science fiction story. The standard way is time passes during which plausible changes in society and technology take place. That's the standard way. There's never a way, there's a discontinuity between our world and the venue of a mystery, of, 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 of a fantasy story. A fantasy, there's right. no way to mm -hmm. get to Middle Earth. You can't go and book a flight on Expedia to get there. You can stand on a train platform forever and the magic train will never come to take you to Hogwarts. You can't get there from here. In science fiction, the puzzle-oriented reader is saying, okay, uh, I, there are colonies around me filled with cloned entities who have neural implants tied into some worldwide consciousness. We're in a lower gravity situation. Where did that come from? How do we, and we look for the clues that the author, just like a mystery author, has carefully salted in the text. And we're picking them up and trying to make sense of it. And it's not that we're at sea and, and lost and don't know what's going on and don't like it any more than a mystery reader feels at sea and lost. Well, I don't know why they killed this guy. Oh, he seemed nice enough to me. I can't, I can't deal with this book. I don't know what's going on. It's an intellectual process that we adore as readers and are actively participatory in as we're reading. They are so closely allied, mystery and science fiction. I love that you bring in fantasy because that's something that I look at too, is that odd pairing of science fiction and fantasy because I study epistemology a lot. And yeah. so epistemologically, study of knowledge, they're, they're not approaching it the same way at all. But there are tons of epistemological consonances between science fiction and detective fiction. And I think, personally, I think we're seeing more and more of that hybrid space being used, certainly in your work, but I think in other works too. It is intuitively obvious to the readership that mystery and science fiction, especially the science fiction readership, that the two genres are alike. You will very often find science fiction fans who are also very, very avid mystery fans. It doesn't go quite as easily the other way. It doesn't go quite as easily. You don't find every mystery fan reads science fiction. But you do find that once they get into it, Oh, this is, this is actually quite familiar territory. Uh, in terms of the way the story is told, you mentioned epistemology. In terms of narrative strategy, it's something I understand. I, I, I get it. I'm, I'm supposed to pay attention. Right. These are the very engaging genres. You can't just passively wander through. Yeah. You've got to be That's intellectually right. engaged right. the whole time. to fully enjoy. And it's funny because in the exactly. scholarship, too, a lot of scholars of science fiction also study a little detective fiction or vice versa. So it's a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, yeah. So Robert, some of the the ideas that you propose here are, are looking forward to the future. And we've got a, a lot of things that are that are possible for the future. 2030, which is featured prominently in Flash Forward, is only a decade away now. And uh, what what do you think the world will look like in 10 years? 
So we have very interestingly had a turning point this last year because of COVID-19. It's forced a whole bunch of people to face the fact that tomorrow is going to be different than yesterday. We did a fast forward <laughs> or a flash forward into teleconferencing, into uh, telecommuting, into working from home, which the technology has been there and mature for a decade or more now, but people were willfully unaware of it. And they were shocked when they did their first Zoom conference and said, oh, wait, I can do this? I can talk to anybody anywhere in the world in real time? And it's free? Excuse me? What happened, you know, to the world that we thought we lived in? The 10-year period that we're facing ahead, it's very interesting because I think there was a real recognition on a primal subconscious level that a reset switch was being hit. That's why... You know, I, there, I had a big fight with somebody on a number of people on Facebook about getting onto a year ago now, April or May of last year. We we're saying, well, why are the Black Lives Matter people acting up now? We've got a crisis on our hands and they're acting up now or speaking up or talking righteously or telling their truth to the world now because they recognize that the reset switch is being hit across everything, that it's not just and we're going to work at home. It's going to and we're going to work at home and everybody matters, and we're going to work at home, and we embrace diversity, and we're going to work at home, and it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, where you sit on the gender spectrum, where you sit on the belief, non-belief spectrum. Uh, it matters that we all are facing common uh, threats, that the things that are existential, climate change and epidemics, are completely, well, of course, it's true that uh, in the United States that uh, African-Americans are suffering disproportionately. Um, but in generally speaking, climate change and, and, and uh, epidemics don't care about any of the things that human beings have tried to assert for an incredibly long amount of time as being important differentiators. They aren't. We're all in this together. So 10 years from now, I was just reading a, a friend of mine, David Hooley, who is um, a futurist, is a new little book out. And he's saying, you know, that this, he's absolutely right, is the last decade in which we have a chance to shift climate change away from being a vastly destructive force. It's going to change the world. The world is already changing. We still have a chance to grasp the horns of that and steer it a little bit in a way that's not going to be as devastating as it might be. By 2030, it's too late. There is an inertia to environment that our puny human efforts, puny, you know, foolish humans <laughs> or puny efforts, we can change things in 2020 that will be unchangeable yep. in 2030. So what will 2030 be like? Mm -hmm. We have a whole generation of millennials growing up now, of people to whom they look back and they they... They grew up under a mixed-race president of the United States, and they saw nothing unusual about that. They see gay men and women uh, and non-binary men and women in positions of enormous public responsibility, and they see nothing unusual about that. There is in academia, Pam will know this well, uh, the old retire or expire factor where a paradigm shift does not happen until the old guard either is retired or dies off. And we live in a world that will be shaped by the millennials. Now you look back at flash forward and yes, there's, you know, there's uh, what we would have called an interracial romance in flash forward between Mashiko uh, and her husband. Uh, you know, there was, uh, I, I, have always been a champion of diversity. You can't live in Toronto or I imagine uh, Chicago uh, uh, without seeing the whole panoply, wondrous panoply of uh, humanity uh, uh, every single day of your life. And uh, as always has been said about prejudice and ignorance, you know, the best way to overcome your fear or hatred of somebody else of another is to get to know an other of that particular, whatever it is you're afraid of. And you find out, oh my God, they're just like me. They're homo sapiens sapiens. We share 200,000 years 
of cultural history together and tiny little things don't matter. So what will 2030 be like? Egalitarian, environmentally conscious, sustainable, a world where, you know, rogue nations of which the United States tatered on becoming one this last four years uh, will no longer be tolerated. North Korea, even, you know, <laughs> um, the, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, is coming out and saying, guess what? I'm not the craziest one anymore, right? <laughs> even he this last week has been making overtures to reasonableness on the international stage because we live in a world 75 years on since the last atomic weapons were used. 10 years will be 85 years. And I fervently believe that in 10 years, we will be looking back and saying 85 years. It's the Fermi paradox writ large. Why are there no aliens out there for us to find and contact? Because you either grow the hell up or you die off. And this is the decade where we make or break that grow you the hell up. No pressure. No pressure. You know, the star, the silence of the stars speaks to the fact. I'm going to go out and that it stop always... around because I, I'm going to be defiant. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Paul Krugman today in the, in the um, New York Times, uh, the Nobel laureate economist says it was appeasement that made possible the siege of the Senate building. It was those of us of good character who felt that getting along and saying, oh, you, you, you crazy uncle there, saying this, this conspiracy theory crap for the last four years, or this mean-spiritedness, or this prejudice, or this racism. We just turned a blind eye to it. And what we have to realize is that appeasement didn't work with, you know, in, in World War II. It doesn't work today. You can't just get along with the people you know, uh, Freud is almost completely discredited as a psychologist, but he wrote a very interesting book, Civilization and Its Discontents, that the people who can't row along in the same direction with a civilization have to be acknowledged and dealt with. And I don't mean in any kind of prison camp kind of way, but we, we have a civilization where a terrorist has the power and soon will have the power to wield nuclear weapons. You got to say, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but there are bigger things than your right to stomp around and be a disruptive force. There's more at stake. Right. In terms of biggest threats, you just hit on a few of them, but I wanted to ask you while we had you here, what do you think are the biggest threats that face us today? There are two kinds of existential threats. They're the one that kind of accidentally happens. And climate change was one. Nobody sat around to warm the climate, not even Canadians who may very well benefit from a warmer climate, right? Our growing season becomes longer. Our Northwest Passage becomes navigable. Uh, our, you know, the reason 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border is it's warmer down there. It's not because we want to cuddle up to Americans. We go as far south as we can without having to cross the border, right? And Canada will, but this was passive. Nobody intended these consequences. We just wanted air conditioning in summer. We wanted, uh, you know, uh, Transportation. economic prosperity. The other kind right. are the ones that we march headlong into. And that big one there is artificial intelligence. It's something that, in fact, is happening. Now, big data mining and what we call generalized AI and all of that, so far, there's no consciousness involved in artificial intelligence. That we are told about. <laughs> What's that? That see? we are aware of. That we're aware of, right? Uh -huh. If you if you emerged uh -huh. the way Webmine emerged in my novel Wake uh, at <laughs> yes. the Watch Wonder, you might have the savviness to say, "I'm not going to tell anybody I'm here." Mm -hmm. But assuming there isn't actually any consciousness yet, we know as an existence proof that our consciousness emerged through perfectly natural processes when our neuronal and societal complexity reached a degree of interactivity, interconnectivity, that consciousness is an emergent property. And we have vanishingly 
little oversight over what's happening in AI. Most AI is not happening at universities. It's happening at for-profit institutions, Google, Apple, Amazon. These are the companies with a motive that is not societally driven, but is driven by the purest capitalist greed going headlong in creating something that may be an existential threat with no oversight, no community engagement. There is no, you know, we talk about, it's one of the questions that may come up that that I advise the federal government on genetic privacy laws. We spend an enormous amount of time talking about our privacy of our genetic information and zero time talking about, I wonder what they're up to at Google today in the field of AI and what accountability they will have if the genie is out of the bottle and says, you know, it's too late, right? We can't, you know, which is, we can't. Which is something you address in your very first novel, Golden Fleece. Golden Fleece, I that's have to right. tell you, that's right. 30 years later, whenever I teach that novel, students still love it. And it's a 30-year-old novel and it still really, really resonates, maybe more than ever today. So even though, you know, the tech is a little different, but that idea of what an AI consciousness can accomplish. That novel came out of the fact that Ronald Reagan was preaching something called Star Wars, Uh which was not Lucasfilm, but was the Strategic (laughs) Defense Initiative, which was based on the assumption that you could build a shield against Soviet, this was back in the Cold War, Soviet incoming ICBMs that would work 100%, 100% flawlessly the first time it had to be deployed. And I went to a talk at the University of Toronto by a computer scientist who said no software system in the history of the human race, going right back to Charles Babbage, nobody had ever run a computer program that run, ran flawlessly. <laughs> right. And we were, and Reagan was betting the safety of the free world on a fundamentally flawed notion of infallibility amongst computers. And I felt I had to expose that in the same way H.G. Wells felt he had to expose in a fictional confection, even in a way, a truth that people would otherwise not have wanted to engage with. Right. Which brings us to our final question for you. I just thought this was so interesting when I saw that you have served as a consultant to Canada's Federal Department of Justice on the shape that future genetics law should take, which I did not realize. And so... I was wondering, does the Canadian DOJ typically hire science fiction writers as consultants? No. In fact, that was the only... And hire, hire. (laughs) (laughs) We're asked to do it out of the goodness of Uh, our heart. Okay. All Um, right. All right. But they put together a group of us. They had me. They had uh, the Reverend James Christie, who is a a, um, theologian (laughs) at the University of Winnipeg. (laughs) They had Bob McDonald, who was the host of Quirks and Quarks, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. That's so cool. (laughs) I love Quirks and Quarks. They brought us together for a think tank of multidisciplinary thinkers. And uh, I have frequently done stuff for uh, various aspects of the federal and provincial and municipal governments in Canada, where there is a recognition that, you know, there are guys who spend their time thinking, on longer time frames. See, the politician has exactly one time frame, the next election, right? Business usually has one time frame, which is usually the next quarterly report or maybe the next annual report. There are not a lot of people <laughs> yeah. in the economic sphere, that is, who have managed to make a living of it, whose goal is to think not in terms of just months or a couple of years, but decades, centuries, and even millennial time frames. And there is, from time to time, a recognition. I also do a lot of uh, uh, consulting. I've consulted with NASA, consulted with Lockheed Martin, I've mm-hmm. consulted with Google. There are lots of organizations that have come to recognize that when you come out with your MBA, you are extraordinarily blinkered in your ability to do extrapolation. You have been taught to think in incredibly short time frames, And the reality is that the things that we are doing right now in nanotechnology, in genetic engineering, 
in artificial intelligence, and in thinking about good governance and how we're going to administer societies will have long-term consequences. We look at, you know, we talked very briefly early on about how in the United States right now, African-Americans are humongously disadvantaged by COVID. Why are they disadvantaged by COVID? We can look back at policies from the 1960s and 70s that made it impossible for the nuclear family to be preserved in poor African-American communities, where it was an economic disadvantage for both parents to stay in the household. And that what seemed like, well, we just don't want freeloaders, right? Uh, seemed like a good idea at the time, has had 50 years, a half century of devastating consequences so that people are dying today and people are undereducated today and underempowered economically today because some morons, some paternalistic morons, a half century ago, were thinking more about how they might ferret out the tiny percentage of human beings who will always cheat any system, rather than thinking about what was the good that could be done in terms of social engineering. And so we have a necessity to call upon our science fiction writers for government, for industry, for urban planners, for civic planners, for policy wonks to say, help me think in a longer term scale and see those second, third, fourth, and fifth order unintended consequences that are the bread and butter of science fiction writing, but are so often completely overlooked because there was no intellectual training to look for them amongst those who are actually effectuating the decisions that will change the course of human history and the human future. And I think you just hit uh, you know, probably the most important part, the unintended consequences. You set out to do something potentially to solve an issue that you felt was very important. And it had an effect that certainly could be dark. It could be wonderful. I mean, the unintended consequences could be positive, but certainly for uh, at least part of our population, it certainly has been devastating to them. Absolutely. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. One of the biggest problems, we had it here in Canada, enormously with our Indigenous peoples. One of the biggest problems is policy being made on behalf of people by people who aren't those people, mm -hmm. right? How many African Americans were at the table making the decisions about policy that we're going to affect African-Americans, how many indigenous Canadians. Mm -hmm. And what we have learned now, I, I think, is that stakeholders have to be brought to the table, that you can't just have the star chamber and the proverbial white old men being the ones who are making policy. you got to say, well, how does it work in your community? What do you want to see? How can we help you? How can we all help everybody? You know, we're all in this together. And forgotten uh, in this is our, our Native American populations who are very much suffering at the hands of those policies that have been put in place. And we we're hearing from the Black Lives Matter group right now. They are saying it loud and proud, but our, our Native American peoples don't have that voice either. Yes. And we have in Canada, of course, we don't we don't say Native Americans. We, we tend to say indigenous up here uh, to avoid the American word. But we have um, uh, a shameful colonialist history in this country. But we really are trying now to listen and hear and understand. And it is such a journey. It's such a journey for everybody because there's so much so many decades of and centuries of mistrust rightfully so, and a hatred, never rightfully so, between the various parties. But the reality is, uh, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to travel all over this planet. And as I keep coming back to, we're just all, it's one species. We're mm -hmm. all the same. And everybody wants a better life for their kids than they had for themselves. Everybody loves their children. Everybody just wants to rest and relax at the end of a day. And everybody wants to contribute. The vanishingly small number of people who are freeloaders in any system, and they're just as likely to be the old white men at the high levels of government as they are to be anybody else. The vanishingly small number of freeloaders are an irrelevancy to the general 
population. And that's how they should be treated instead of constantly spending all our time, energy, tax code, social planning, everything to try and make sure that one guy in one place at one time isn't gaming the system. Everybody else just wants a fair chance at a better tomorrow. I'm hearing so much utopianism in your response. I am a utopian. I'm a exactly. Totally, you know, <laughs> exactly. And it's rare because it. the dominant, the do, I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, Pat, forgive me. Please. The dominant voice in science fiction for the last 20 years has been dystopian. I would disagree Margaret with Atwood that. The leading <laughs> voice of dystopian. But Margaret and Atwood, you know, she, Margaret Atwood is just as optimistic as you and me, Rob. I mean, Margaret. Oh, is the Utah? <laughs> Come on, she contributed. The, the gloves first just book. came off. We got, we got, <laughs> we got a battle. Next up on Crossfire. Come on, Margaret. Come on. Was, Margaret was absolutely right when she wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Right? Of course she, she was. Absolutely. absolutely. Right. But I don't I think she was right when she wrote Oryx and Crake. Right? I don't. I think she was right to recognize um, the enormous failure. It was so easy. It would have been easy in '84, '85 when that book came out to say, okay, feminism has achieved its goals and we have bodily autonomy and Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, is the law of the land. And she was right to recognize that there were cosmetic differences, uh, that things looked better for women than they'd ever looked before. But there was a deep, deep systemic rot that was mm -hmm. so deep, so entrenched that those were only cosmetic changes and handmaid's tale uh is deserves every person's attention it deserved it in 85 and it deserves it in 2021 uh she has continued to uh i think embrace a negative view of tomorrow uh oryx and crake says you know genetic engineering and and so forth well it's going to be our downfall well no it's going to be how we're going to feed africa and feed uh you know in post-climate change economies feed north america uh we she and i part company on whether the brightest days of humanity are ahead or not but you should read both. I mean, you should, everybody And should we are actually reading Oryx and Crake in this book club like three months from now. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Is well, you Crake. can go find so my reviews of Oryx and Crake. There are two on the book review section and, of my uh, Right, of website. course. <laughs> and, you know, when the book came out, Margaret said on CBC Radio, Sheila Rogers, who runs the top book show, said to Margaret, uh, you know, and, and uh, how's the reception to the new book? And Margaret said, well... Everybody but Robert Sawyer likes it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are gonna have we are gonna come back to this moment when we go to Oryx and Crick. And of course Sure, but will Peggy show up for your book club? <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> we will challenge her with that. <laughs> well, and I was—I decided to do a totally Canadian thing for this year of the book club. I've got em Emily St. John Mendel, Station Eleven is the book after Oryx and Crake. So excellent, nice, excellent. It's a nice grouping of texts. So, um, so <laughs> thank you. We'll continue to disagree about Margaret Atwood's utopianism because, come on, Scribbler Moon participation first book first book given to the future art project you know i mean atwood does write very darkly and of course dystopia shows you darkness but i think for the purpose of activating people of activating readers with a notion of the future that like imagine a brighter future i think that that is largely how dystopia functions in some ways it's a it's a very very generative genre and you don't your, your books aren't all you you rely on oh, quantum night is my my dark book quantum right. night exactly is my dark book. and you rely you on dystopian tropes in your utopian vision absolutely you can't be Pollyannish. <laughs> you have to be realistic but that said you know we are still if there was a failure to dystopianism it is the great novels of dystopianism still coming true day after day. Brave New World, 1984. <laughs> 1984 one we call up here in Canada, Celsius 233. They just keep being over and over again. That's Fahrenheit 45. I, know. I, I, I heard the translation. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for translating for us ignorant <laughs> Americans. Thank you, Robert. They, you know, the fact <laughs> of the matter is that they still are relevant today. That's right. That they didn't affect the change that they were meant to affect. 
But so, Steve, I want to go ahead and point out that we had point and counterpoint by two Canadians, and it was the nicest battle ever. <laughs> and we sat here, of course. And we sat here in our ignorance and just stared and went, "Yes, what, whatever you just said, that's a good point." But Rob, yes, ma'am. But don't forget that you know when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, people reached for The Handmaid's Tale and they reached for 1984. Yes. Which both like briefly reappeared. Yes, in the New York absolutely. Ab- no, so, absolutely. So, absolutely. They so even though, even though they didn't change the world and prevent certain things from happening, there's still a way that, that people can, can understand. And again, can, can become activated to make social sure, and political sure. changes. Science fiction uh, is a Cassandra amongst genres. Exactly. We make mm-hmm. the predictions. We're always, we're not always right, but we're, we're often right. <laughs> And yet we are doomed to not be believed until retrospect. <laughs> oh, why didn't anybody warn us? Well, we kind of did. We kind of did. And it is funny how you can read a science fiction book and you can tell which ones. I mean, the population as a whole, the good ones, the ones that are more right are the ones that people really grasp and, yes. and hold on to. Well, it gives you the the verbal language to describe something like this you know, this is a, you know, a brave new world moment, or this is yeah. a 1984 mm-hmm. moment. It gives you a way of a shorthand of communicating a, a, a large idea. Absolutely. And it's very valuable in that point of, in that uh, way. It has given us a way of, of uh, exactly what you said, Chip, a vocabulary for dealing with these notions. Mm-hmm. And these super nuanced situations that we find ourselves in all the time as human beings on this planet. Excellent. Wonderful. I, I'm now so much smarter having listened to the two of you Canadians explain it for the Americans. I appreciate I appreciate all of this knowledge that I now have that I can share with our listeners. Uh, Robert, we're reading flash forward we're one third of the way through we're only we've only gone through part one uh is there anything that we should be looking for in your writing in part two and three in flash you've forward? read it much more recently than i have i haven't read the book <laughs> since it came out um <laughs> i'll be interested in what you have to think because you're right the world has changed in the 20 odd years since that book came out and uh I'm an angrier person probably than I was because you know we didn't predict that the last four years would go down the way the last four years would go down. It seemed inconceivable uh, when I wrote that book that we weren't on a generally, you know, we were still sliding out of, of post-World War II and the EU was going to be the great savior and model. The idea of a Brexit, the idea of an authoritarian fascist monster leading the free world, the idea that uh, we would still have to grapple with uh, the fundamental worth of people, uh, of all peoples, uh, seemed implausible in 1990, 1990s was right, that that, that we were beyond that. And um, there may be a naivete in my view of the future that you see in Flash Forward, that were I to revisit it, which I never will, I will. There are writers, <laughs> no, there are writers who go back and revisit sure. their texts. But as yeah. I said, every book is about the year in which it is written. Agree. Right? H.G. Wells, yep. if he were reanimated today, would not go back and rewrite the time machine to yeah. explore today's version of, of classism, he would write something new. And I'm writing something yeah. new right now. I'm writing my post-COVID work right now. Ooh, yeah. can't wait. <laughs> Neither can my editor. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find out about this new book that, that your publisher is waiting for? One of my great predictions was that this internet thing was going to take off. I was the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website. And so I got a great URL. It is sfwriter.com. S is in science. F is in fiction. Writer.com. Go there and you'll find all about my latest, the Oppen- where is he there? The Oppenheimer Alternative, the 23 previous novels. I'm also active on Facebook. Twitter and Patreon with my full name just smushed together with no punctuation, Robert J. Sawyer. 
Excellent, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this book. Uh, we look forward to Pam. What's our assignment for next week? So we are going to part two of Flash Forward. We'll be reading chapters 12 to 20. Uh, and, and then the week after, we will finish out this book. I'm really excited, as usual, to hear what you guys think about one of my favorite novels. And, and what an amazing opportunity to speak to the author. Robert J. Sawyer, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today and in all of these books. I, I am now a fan, and I'm going to read more of your work. All right, Chip, I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I am so much smarter now that Pam and Robert Sawyer had that conversation. Pam, uh, am I okay? Do I have enough information to survive another week? <laughs> None of us ever has enough information to survive another day, but we'll do our very best. And you guys, that was, thank you. I mean, I think so often how excited and lucky I am to have met you two and to be doing this podcast. But today because of you guys, I got to talk to one of my favorite writers. So I just, um, that was, that was such a fun conversation with Robert J. Sawyer. And it's just so fun to have this podcast with you. I can't wait to hear what you guys think about part two of Flash Forward. Fantastic. We would love to hear from you as well. We would love to hear what are you thinking about this story? Are you reading along with us? Give us a call or a text or a phone number is 805-410-4867. Send us an email, sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. This is phenomenal. Let's, let's go forward into the future. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hasselblad. And I'm Pam Bedore. Canadian. We'll see you in the future. <laughs> Never felt more Canadian than I do right now. I've got cartoons to watch. I got a hockey game I'm gonna go check out. <laughs>